Welcome to another episode of Religionless Church, you ecclesiastical nuts. In this episode, I talked to Bonnie Christian about the multiplicity of Christianity. Uh, Christianity, if you don't know, takes a lot of different forms throughout all sorts of different time and different cultures. And I think it really makes that part of the faith really compelling, that there there is a faith that can kind of span and stretch to different cultures across different time periods. And I think that's a really beautiful part of this faith. And we talk about that, and she released, recently wrote a book called Flexible Faith, in which she sort of talks about that. And she answers or responds to all these different questions that are pressing questions in Christianity and she kind of responds to them based on different theological and Christian traditions. So she really sort of highlights and and demonstrates the multiplicity of Christianity. Also throughout this episode you will hear Brittany McQuinn's music. Brittany McQuinn is not only a Canadian and she's not only a Patreon supporter of my work on Religionless Church, which you totally should too, but she's also a really wonderful pop artist. And I'm not really well versed in the pop music. I never really got into that as a kid, and neither have I gotten into it as an adult. But I really dig her music. It, it's, I think her instrumentation, the music behind her vocals, and her vocals really meld well together. There's just a, the sort of like, kind of dark vibe to it that isn't necessarily apparent on a lot of pop music. It's it's not always really cheery and happy. And for, for those who know my existential angst, I really like the dark themes to her music. So I would highly recommend getting connected to her music and you'll hear her later. And she's just really wonderful. So again, you can get connected to Bonnie's work and you will see the links in the description below. You can get connected to Brittany's work as well. And again, you'll see the links in the description below and you can get connected to my work. And I would really appreciate if you get connected to my Patreon page in which you can support my work. You will get sort of different rewards based on whatever tier you commit to financially giving me a month. You know, it could be a dollar a month or $5 a month, $10 a month. And obviously each one has their own different rewards. And I would love for you to get connected that way. I really think you're going to enjoy this episode and I can't wait for you to listen. So without further ado, here's Religionless Church. Today we have Bonnie Christian, and Bonnie is a writer who uh, mainly thinks about theology, politics, and guinea pigs. Probably the emphasis on the guinea pigs, maybe more so than others. <laughs> um, but uh, Bonnie lives in the Twin Cities, so uh, Bonnie and I are Twin, Cib- Twin Cities uh, co-residents, probably would be the right term. Uh, are you, you're on the St. Paul side, though, right? 
I am, and I'm a big St. Paul loyalist. Really? Uh, in okay. Fact, yeah, yesterday at, at, at church, um, our speaker asked a question about what do you think of when you think about worldliness, and someone piped up and said Minneapolis, and I, <laughs> I supported that. Totally. Well, I, I am very much a Minneapolis loyalist, so uh, <laughs> uh, maybe maybe that, that difference, uh, maybe we won't be able to reconcile that, but flexible cities on top of flexible faith, right? <laughs> So uh, Bonnie writes for, um, has written for Time, uh, for CNN, Politico, The Hill, Relevant Magazine, uh, and The American Conservative. And just recently, in the last year or so, graduated from Bethel with a MA in Christian Thought. And uh, you're exploring PhDs op- options as well still in the ethics world? I am, yeah. There's a, a program I really want to do at the University of Aberdeen in theological ethics, oh. and it's a fully distance program though of mm-hmm. course you know you have to go to scotland a couple of times which I'm of sure course is you do such a drag um <laughs> but uh yeah i'm not i'm not as far along in that application as i would like to be what with book stuff going on um but that is very much still on my agenda for the hopefully near future that's great i've i know a few people that are in that aberdeen mm. um university phd world and um from all i've heard they love it they really do love it um so a- as you mentioned you just wrote, wrote a book, uh, or actually uh, is going to be releasing here soon. By the time the listeners listen, though, the book will have already been out for a while. But um, you have written a book called A Flexible Faith. And yeah, I, I would really like to talk about that with you. Um, but before we get into A Flexible Faith, my first question, as always, is who's Bonnie Christian to Bonnie Christian? Um, well, as you mentioned, I'm a, I'm a writer. And so I, that's sort of always been my, I don't know. Well, I shouldn't say always, I did want to be a veterinarian when I was a kid and I had guinea pigs by then. So that makes sense. But then of course I found out, you know, the great horror of every child who wants to be a veterinarian, which is sometimes you have to kill the animals. Um, and so that was off the table, but, uh, Mm -hmm. yeah. So writing has, um, sort of just been my my long-term uh goal and just sort of the the thing that I do and have done um and uh this book is uh it's sort of not the the first book that I thought I'd write I'm not sure that I had okay. an idea of of what it would be um but it surprised me a little bit that this was it and mm-hmm. uh so yeah it's 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 a little bit less political than a lot of the writing that I do, a, right. a lot of the stuff I do on a weekly basis is much more news and politics. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is obviously uh, in the theological realm. Um, and so then on a, I guess, on a less professional, although when you write and work from home, I think the professional and the personal tend to very much bleed together. For but sure, for sure. On a, on a less professional note, um, I do live in the, the Twin Cities, as you mentioned. Um, I'm a member of a Mennonite congregation where I'm on the teaching team and I, I lead one of our house church groups. Um, in fact, I think you maybe know our pastor. I believe his wedding reception was held at Solomon's Porch, which is where you are. Mm-hmm. Yep. Right? Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I stay busy reading and running and watching too much television. And uh, <laughs> I do have two guinea pigs um, and they are very happy about the warm weather. Also, because they can go outside and eat grass now. Oh, I didn't even think about that, but yeah, for sure. Yeah. Whisk me to the big ocean, my little city's little sins are adding up to equal get me out. 
what inspired you to pen this book? You know, it was a couple different things sort of linked to different audiences that I have in mind. Um, and so the, the first audience and the first reason um, is people who maybe have gone through a phase of, of deconstruction or doubt in their faith. Um, and so then it's sort of like, okay, well, what happens next when you're, you've asked these questions and you're still asking the questions, but you're not looking to, to stay in that moment forever. Like at some point mm-hmm. you want to move on to some sort of, of reconstruction and like refinding your footing. Um, and so with that audience and with that motivation, it was, it was sort of just to say like, Hey, we, there should be a, a really practical guide to get you started mm. on, on moving past that. Because I think, like, for me, research is sort of just my, where I go to, but when I have questions um, about faith or, or doubts, but many people maybe don't have the inclination, or they don't have the time, or they don't just don't know where to begin, because, you know, they have normal things to do in their lives. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to create something super accessible that I could give to people in that context and just say, like, look, this isn't going to answer, like, every question in full detail, because mm-hmm. it's covering a lot of territory, but um, it'll answer a lot and it'll help you figure some stuff out and point you in a direction to, to learn more. And then the second um, sort of audience motivation was uh, Christians who are, are not necessarily in that season of deconstruction. Um, maybe they're totally com- comfortable and, and mm-hmm. confident in their church context, but they, and I, they, I say they, I should say we, I think we can tend to, um, grow too comfortable there in the sense of we we just don't take the trouble to find out what other Christians believe, like why they differ from us, mm-hmm. how they differ from us, how it relates to what we believe. And that's, I think it's super, super dangerous for not just for like, oh, let's all cooperate, but like these people are our fellow Christians. They're also part of the body of Christ. Like they're not our enemies. They're not a different religion. Yes, they might have some pretty different ideas, but like it shouldn't be a big deal. It shouldn't be scary to find out what that is. But then who was I? As they placed their rings in the back, I think I had got his eye. One thing that I really appreciated about this book was that you talk a lot about, uh, or you respond to a number of different questions uh, that are very much relevant to uh, the questions that people are asking now. Um, But you didn't just do it from your own perspective. And and I think you completely recognize that your perspective is one perspective, and that's valid, but that there's a lot of other perspectives going on and and a lot of um, perspectives that are responding to these questions in very different ways. And so you asked a number of different, uh, and talked to a number of different Christians throughout the, the gamut of the tradition. And so I'm, I'm assuming you learned a, a number of things from the wide variety of people that you talked to. So what did you learn uh, about other Christians that were different than, than you while you were writing this book? Yeah, so, well, first for, for readers or listeners, I always felt to readers, for listeners who, who may not be familiar with the book, just a quick structural note. So there's like 17 chapters that are based around a question. Mm-hmm. Um, things like, you know, what is hell like? Or do you stop sinning after you're saved? And so those sort of look at the different perspectives within like Christian orthodoxy, that different ways that different Christians have answered that question. And then in between the chapters and separate from those are interviews, just short five question interviews with Christians 
um, from more unusual traditions or contexts, um, people that, you know, you may not meet even after a lifetime in church. And so there's, for example, like an Amish couple, um, there's a Benedictine nun, there's a Messianic Jew, all sorts of people um, that are a, a little bit out of the ordinary and not just representing a, a perspective, but mm-hmm. even more, something more inclusive, more of a, a lifestyle um, of, of following Jesus, if you will. And so a lot of the, the stuff in the, in the question chapters on the more theological side of things, I was pretty familiar with going into, you know, having right. gone to seminary. The, the interviews, though, were definitely um, eye-opening for me as well. Hmm. Um, so let me just glance at the list. I know, so for example, the, there were some that, that very much surprised me or that I, I really didn't know a lot going in. Um, the Seventh-day Adventist Church, which ironically, right. that was someone I, I went to high school with, and yet I, <laughs> I knew nothing about his church. Um, so that was, I, I had a general sense of, you know, I think Seventh-day Adventism gets a, a strange rap because the name seems unusual to people. Right. Um, and so finding out, you know, what exactly they're about, that was, that was very much news to me in a lot of ways. Um, and then I was also very much fascinated by the the interview with Randy Woodley, who's a Native American and a professor out in, I want to say, Oregon, even just in terms of how he, like the nomenclature he used, how he phrased things. Hmm. Um, that was eye-opening for me. Um, and I ended up tweaking the nomenclature of my questions to reflect what he'd said. Huh, interesting. Um, yeah, so like, for example, he was, if I'm remembering correctly, he was not huge into using the phrase um or using the word church he wanted to just talk about like followers of jesus in a broader sense right less on the institutional side of things Mm -hmm. Um, so that was a a very intriguing one without a feeling wishing for a bigger way i tell the water i am so th- those are some things that you learn from other Christians. What did you learn about yourself while you were writing this book that you didn't expect to learn? Um, perhaps that there are some where I'm a little bit more ambivalent than I expected. Hmm. Um, and a big one, and, and this maybe makes me a, a bad Mennonite. Um, <laughs> you know, we're part of the Anabaptist tradition. And of course, it's right there in the name, Rebaptizer. That was the, the whole big thing. Um, when these traditions were getting started that, you know, you wanted to have an adult baptism. Um, and I was sort of surprised by my own ambivalence about baptism. Not like I, I am an Anabaptist. I do believe mm-hmm. in adult believers baptism, but in terms of the question of like, if you were baptized as an infant and then you convert to an adult baptism tradition, do you have to get it done over again? Um, and so the early Mennonites would have been like, yes, absolutely. That's the whole deal. You have to get it done. Whereas I was like, mm, I mean, probably you should. But I was struggling to, to you know, really lay down the law on that. And related to that, I, I found myself more, uh, I don't know if ambivalent is the right word, but there's a lot I find persuasive um, in the the sacraments versus ordinances debate of like, mm. do we, do we view the sacraments as like really like they're really changing something on a spiritual level when you do this, or is it just a memorial? Um, just something that we do as a ritual as almost a learning aid for ourselves. Um, and yeah, I'm very much like drawn to both sides on that. Hmm. Interesting. What, what about that? Like what, 
what about each is really compelling? Like a little snidbit, like you don't have yeah. to go into writing a whole another right. book about that. But <laughs> what, what, just a little snidbit about what, what about each? How the memorial side is really compelling, and how the more spiritually significant uh, the sacraments play side. Yeah. Well, so let's just take communion. Um, so in the sacramental views, you know, there's this idea that it's the it's the real presence of Christ. Jesus is there in a whether it's like. He's, the the elements actually transform into the body of blood in mm. Christ, or in like you know the the more Lutheran Presbyterian traditions, it's there in some spiritual sense, but it's it's there. There's a real presence. Um, and then of course in the memorial view, it's it's just bread and wine, or more often bread and grape juice. So on the on the memorial side, there's the argument of God is everywhere. How can he be more in one place than he mm. already is? Like, he's, mm-hmm. he, how did, can he make more of himself in one location? And so that seems compelling to me. Um, it's simple, but it, it seems compelling to me. And then on the, but on the, the side for the, the sacramental perspective, um, I don't know, saying this is just a visual aid for us, that seems a little weak, saying right. like, there's not some extra spiritual reality happening. And so, um, yeah, the, the argument that it's more than just a ritual, it's more than, for our benefit, that it, it's actually but some unique interaction with God as opposed to just a learning tool. That, that seems you compelling to me also. Do not trust. So take a clock and take a seat And feel the wood beneath you repeat I really like the phrase flexible faith and i think it assumes that the christian faith can easily easily bend and kind of evolve and change however it needs to um yet many people in the christian faith tradition are really alarmed when you have that assumption that the christian faith can bend they they really have more of a rigid uh strong structure that uh is not to be meant to be bent um how do those people fit within your understanding of flexible faith? Yeah, you know, it's interesting that, um, so we went through so many titles for this book, probably Hmm. 20, 30, like a lot. Um, And this was not in the first or second or maybe even third round, but we finally settled (laughs) on it. And it's been interesting because it's something of a a Rorschach test. Um, You know, Hmm. those ink blots where what you see is more reflective of yourself than of what's actually there. Um, in that how people respond to it is very different, whether they take flexible to be a positive or a negative thing at first mm-hmm. blush. Um, and so for those who take it as a negative thing, um, I, I hope that the, so in the opening chapter, I talk about thinking about theology in, in terms of concentric circles, where mm-hmm. we sort of rank issues on order of importance, and, and some things are just not as important as other things. And I'm hoping that that framing will help um, to understand what I mean when I say the faith is flexible. It's not just, you know, it can be anything ever, um, but that there are some things where we need to be flexible and some things where we need to be less flexible. Um, and so it's interesting also in the sense that particularly of the, the interviews that I have, the short Q&As, um, because those people tend to be from more unusual and distinct traditions, um, they probably don't have a lot in common with each other. 
Um, mm. I mean, there are a lot of people in this book together who would disagree with each other quite a lot. Right. Um, yeah. Who would disagree with me quite a lot. And I think that it's a testament to when we put our minds to it, uh, we can um, be aware and, and function in light of the fact that, that there are things that are more important than other things and that like that central focus on Jesus is more important than these other disagreements that we have. Mm-hmm. Um, and I suspect that, that for many people who, who react to flexible, the concept of flexibility and faith more negatively, if pressed, can get to that point. Um, certainly there are some who won't. But I suspect for a lot of people, if you really sit down and think it through and say, like, look, is it more important that, that our faith is centered on Jesus than the question of, like, are there animals in heaven? They will agree, yes, Jesus is more important than the animals. And you can go from something, you know, simplistic like that to to more complex issues and and think through, like, how we decide what counts as as heresy and what things we just want to say. You know, I think you're wrong, but I I don't think it makes you not a Christian, and I think the faith can accommodate your wrongness. (laughs) Mm -hmm. How much do you feel like your book is... um out of response to a lot of the ecumenical movement that continues to exist um, and, and have a lot of power in, in, in many Christian traditions today? It's, it's definitely connected. Um, I'm, I mean, my goal is not necessarily to get people to, to switch churches or to, to mm-hmm. and it's certainly not to get people to, uh, loosen their own convictions if they're good with where they are. But I do think it's very important to to be better about interacting positively with people in these other denominations and other traditions. And um, there are just there are t- too many times where we don't interact or we don't interact well over stuff that, well, important is is not as important as we make it out to be. Um, and I think that's really tragic. What uh, you know, eventually in in the resurrection will will be united and that'll mm-hmm. be fantastic um it'll be one of i think the great joys of the resurrection but right now we need to you know get our act together and, and be a little bit more functional in the midst of our disagreements uh, recognizing that we can't have that perfection yet but we can do a lot better than we're doing now he is a friend he's meant for healing i can't wait till this is a fire I also find it interesting the particular questions that you respond to in this book. Uh, so these questions, as I said earlier, um, are are responded to uh, because right now in our context, those are the questions that many Christians are wrestling. Uh, I'm curious, though. Let's uh, let's say hypothetically, uh, you write this book in 50 years. What sorts of questions do you think Christians would be asking that you felt the need to respond to in a book very similar to this? Oh, man, Um, that's so hard to predict, especially because, you know, the questions that we think are are so serious now, we probably won't care about then. Right. Questions that were so serious, you know, 100 or 500 years ago. Now it's eh, baptism, whatever. Um, (laughs) That's a terrible quote. Baptism, whatever. Anyway. Yeah, um, <laughs> you might be excommunicated out of the Anabaptist tradition I know, right there. I know. You gotta be careful. Um, <laughs> no, so 
you know, I think that that questions of gender and sexuality will continue to expand. Mm-hmm. Um, I do address same-sex relationships, but I think that will probably and similar identity questions, maybe not specifically about gender and sexuality, but it seems like the the focus on identity um, will continue to be a larger portion of theology. That seems like low-hanging fruit, but I think that's the, mm-hmm. the most obvious one that I would bring up. Are, are there any others that kind of come to mind as, wow, that really is going, like it, maybe it's not fully manifesting right now, but yeah, the seeds are are being planted right now, where that is going to be a key issue in twenty five or thirty years yeah. that people are really going to be wrestling over. I do wonder if questions about um, miraculous gifts, um, the charismatic oh, okay. gifts, will be a bigger thing, yeah. particularly as just like the balance of church population is shifting to the global south, right. um, and those churches tend to be much more charismatic, much more Pentecostal uh, than we do here in like the. Europe and North America. Mm-hmm. And so just, um, I, I mean, for example, the, the average Mennonite, I'm told, is like a 25-year-old Ethiopian woman or something. Um, mm. Very much not, you know, Americans. And so I think just by force of, like, where is the church, we will have to pay more attention to our, our brothers and sisters on in those other continents mm-hmm. um, and, and listen to their perspectives. And I think they're having pretty different conversations than we are. Um, For example, what I just mentioned about issues of gender and sexuality, I don't think, from what I understand at least, that that's Mm -hmm. nearly such a big debate there in the way that it is here. Um, But the the charismatic gifts question, I think, will be forced to deal with that um, more seriously once we're interacting with those Christians more. Yeah. Yeah, I, I I agree. I think I think what's interesting too with that that shift um, to the global south to where I mean where most of Christianity is being expressed and practiced, I think there's going to be an overwhelming question that I don't think many people are starting to ask themselves or even prepared to be asked is. So right now, the majority of Christians in the world are in the global south. But the majority of the church's resources are still in the in, in Western Europe and in America, and that shift that like I don't foresee the Western Hemisphere just willingly give up its resources. Uh, so yeah. that's going to be a huge question too. Of for example, is most of theology still going to be dominated by white men 50 years from now, even though the vast majority already of Christians are not white men? Right. Like yeah, th- those, I mean, those shift, that shift of power uh, mm-hmm. to better align with the demographics is going to be an interesting debate that I think uh, is going to become more and more of an issue. I agree. And I think there are some denominations that are already seeing some of that shift happen um when i before i moved to minnesota my husband and i spent a year uh in alexandria outside washington dc and we were attending an anglican church there and it was a part of i'm not sure exactly how this functioned but their bishop or i may be getting this wrong it's been a while but i believe it was their bishop lived somewhere in africa i don't remember the details Hmm. um but so their immediate authority for that congregation was in Africa, he was not in America, mm-hmm. um, and so I, I assume that money was 
sent there in the way that, you know, our, our congregation sends money to like the Midwest Mennonite Central Committee or something. Um, and so, yeah, I think as, as the demographics shift, the, the leadership structures will slowly shift as well. And then, yeah, surely you have to be shifting the money as well, though, and, and with the money, obviously, the, the attention to different voices. But mm-hmm. I, I think you're right that it may not come easily. For sure. Uh, so as your book explores, there is a wide breadth and depth of, uh, of Christian faith. What is it about Christianity that allows it to be so diverse across time, across cultures, and across different people? I'm, I think a lot of it goes back to what I mentioned earlier, which is that idea of some things matter more than others. And so I think of, um, even in the New Testament, Paul talking about, like, when I came to you, I resolved to know nothing but Christ crucified, like that, just that central focus on Christ. Um, mm. And my, my congregation is going through the book of First Corinthians right now. And of course, that has the, the passage about um, should you eat the meat sacrificed to idols or not? And then it's yep. this very much situational ethic of like, if you're not going to hurt anybody and you want to have the meat, have the meat. But if there's situations where you're going to, you know, infringe on someone else's spiritual growth, you need to defer to that situation. Um, and I think hmm. that, that that idea of adaptability, that idea of, um, you know, being all things to all peoples that you might win some for Christ has has stuck with the church. and so. Um, maybe not as as much as it should, certainly over mm-hmm. the course of history, but um, in its best uh, in its best cases, I think we've been able to keep that that central focus on Christ, mm-hmm. uh, and then had a degree of grace and forbearance on the other issues, and a degree of adaptability to culture and to you know preferences and, and talents as we come across them, and I think that's a good thing. Um, of course, it's a it's a difficult thing because we all believe that we're right about everything that we believe. Um, but uh, it's something to be to be cultivated uh, and to be preserved and and taught to to future generations as much as possible. That's great. Yeah, I, I remember in my under undergrad uh, in a history of Christianity class that uh, I mean this would have been a, the first few centuries. After the the first followers of Jesus, there was I, I'm sure it's somewhere I don't know exact names or whatever, but there was a, a cave that had uh, that that was a part of Greece, and on it was kind of the this these sort of drawings and etchings of uh, of some sort of narrative from the Gospels, mm. and what's interesting is all of the disciples and Jesus are not wearing first, uh, first century Palestinian clothing, but rather whatever, what, third oh, sure. century Greek clothing. Mm-hmm. And, and so it, it's really interesting that even from the, ve- like the, within the first uh, hundred years, I mean, from the very uh, initiation of this movement of followers of Jesus, there was already contextualization that was already happening, that was already diversifying itself. And even within like the the, the early communities uh, followers of Jesus, uh, that there there was even a diversity there that ultimately came together. And I mean, there was already diversity starting to happen, and contextualization of this message and this movement already happening. And I just find that so fascinating that this 
this faith has it within it an embeddedness of contextualization to particular cultures in which it finds itself. And um, I think that's something that as Christians we can really uh, uh, take pride in. Like we, this is part of our tradition and, and it's something to foster and, and something to, to take care of uh, because I think it's really important. Uh, to our faith because I really do think it's embedded within our tradition. More and more people are coming in contact with the Christian tradition uh, uh, throughout throughout many different kind of modalities and mediums. Um, and the, and, and they're doing that through mediums and, and modalities that would have never existed 50, 100 years ago or whatever. Um, so with this increased connectivity of different Christian traditions that years ago would have never have connected, uh, how do you think that that connectivity is going to change particular traditions? I mean, I hope it changes for the better. Um, mm-hmm. I have thought about this, and, and this is you know, maybe a book like this would not have been necessary or or would not have been necessary right. to many people, you know, a hundred years ago mm-hmm. where you had your one local parish church and that's where you went and you walked there and that was it. And you never considered your, you know, that there might be another, another option. And now there's like 40 churches within three miles of my house or something. Right. Um, so yeah, I, I hope it's a, a positive thing. Um, one way that I, I like to express this is you know, I'm sure you've heard we sort of have this as like a um, um, a myth or a, a folk tale in, in the American church, the idea of like your kid is raised in church and then goes off to college and encounters mm-hmm. these new ideas and these scary atheist professors and like <laughs> just loses faith. Um, I, I, there should be like a trilogy of movies that are based right off of that. I think you could maybe call it like God's Not Dead and it would just be, Bingo. Yeah. Perfect. Um, Let's so, do it. So that, that, kind, of, that kind of story. Um, <laughs> so the, the way that I, I, I sometimes express it is like, so wouldn't you rather your kid goes off to college and becomes like a Lutheran or a Catholic or a Pentecostal instead of just leaving the faith? Um, and so, and I think that would be most, a way less boring. There are way more boring yeah, movies, right? <laughs> like going yeah. from Methodist to Pentecostal. Just yeah, doesn't that, quite that have the gravitas to it. Not be a, a thrilling film, but um, but in real life, I think it would be a a better thing. And I think having that exposure to to other traditions, to other types of Christians, um, is I think sort of the one of the best ways to end up with a faith that can actually survive encountering new ideas um, and that can engage with them well and that has other resources to draw on besides just your, you know, your one um, personal background. I'm sure you've seen that comic that's been floating around the Christian internet for years where it's like a church, I don't know, um, membership class and there's like the chart of all the places the church has split over history and it's like hundreds of splits and then at the end it's like and here's us and we got things right and Jesus is so lucky yeah, to have yeah, us yeah. yeah so we don't want to be those people um, and I think that the, the connectivity that you described makes it possible for us to not be those people um, hmm. and that's a hopefully mm-hmm. good thing and we, well and we're also left with no excuse if we are those people because it's right. so near now to encounter other other traditions Thank mm-hmm. you.
Today we have Brittany McQuinn, who is the artist you've been hearing throughout this episode. And Brittany is not only a Canadian, but a... Would you still identify as a Christian? Is that, a, is that something? <laughs> Good question. Um, <laughs> I, I believe in God and I have faith in Jesus. It doesn't mm-hmm. look like it did when I first understood what the term Christian meant. Right. So I really don't know how to answer that question. <laughs> yeah. I, I think a lot of us are in that sort of same boat. Yeah. That's awesome. Yep. That's our millennial generation. We're that's, all... <laughs> exactly. You're right up in that. Yeah, for sure. That's awesome. So, Brittany, you... Obviously, we've been listening to your music throughout this episode. And this, all this music comes from one album of yours called Bold. What was the sort of inspiration behind making this album? Uh, so, um, I have been making music all my life. I've been writing music uh, and kind of creating songs in my head since I was, since I can remember, really. Huh. Um, and so I had just put out uh, my first album called From Basements to Rooftops, and it's a compilation of songs from um, my teenage years, basically. Hmm. And uh, I put that out, I think I was 23 when I released it. So I, it, w- it was kind of like a, it was kind of like a showcase of my own past and I was ready to be sharing something new and fresh that I've been writing more recently. So in 2016, I started working on Bold. Um, my uh, friend Daniel, who now we're in a band called Bloom together, mm-hmm. um, he saw one of my shows. Uh, I was doing an acoustic show and he was like, I just want you to hear what you would sound like with electronic music production mm. behind you. And I loved like pop and electronic music. And I was like, oh, I want to do it so bad. So we started making music together. Um, two years of trial and error and a learning curve. And out of that came um, this little EP called Bold of songs that were kind of of a similar theme um, and felt really meaningful to me as a songwriter. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of where Bold came from. It was the product of um, learning about, you know, electronic music and uh huh. And uh, also, it was it it really is the story of of me realizing who I am, what I'm, uh, what I feel like kind of called to do, and that it's very different than what uh, I would have let myself do a few years mm-hmm. ago. <laughs> so <laughs> that's yeah. awesome. So yeah. I, I'm not really well versed in any sort of electronic or pop music. That's just not something I really grew up with listening to and is still not very much of what I listen to. Um, but listening through your album in the last few days when I've been editing this episode, I've really noticed that the music, the, the sort of uh, instrumentation going on in the songs really, I don't know how to explain it really, other than it really melds well with your voice. Like it, it, they really complement each other. What are some of the influences that your friend kind of introduced you to to sort of uh, project you into the trajectory of, of making this sort of music? Uh, because you were saying like you hadn't really dabbled so much with electronic music before. What, what, what were some of those electronic influences that sort of helped you kind of shape that album instrumentation wise well, and with melding that with your vocals? Sure. So um, pop right now and for the past few years has been really heavily influenced by um, R&B um, and some of the other kind of um, like trap music was, mm-hmm. was really popular. And it, it all kind of like 
it can all kind of become pop or pop will kind of dabble with like these little genres and then it'll go into a different genre. So pop's always moving and I've always mm-hmm. loved pop. So I'm, I, I like, I can enjoy lots of different styles. My first album was like folk pop because I wrote okay. it around 2010 ish, um, give and take. And so that, that was pop back then. So yeah, that was, was like, a bit, I remember that being a big thing. Huge. Right. And I enjoyed it, but now my interests are like changing and I want to try new things. So, um, Daniel, who produced um, Bold, um, really loved, you know, R&B, still does. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was something that I hadn't, like, I, I was still kind of in the folk world at the at the point. And so R&B was felt very foreign to me, but I was like, I'm just going to try it and see what happens. So when it comes uh, to influences, I would say, like, just whatever is kind of popular right now. Um, we, like, even with Bloom, the band that we're in together now, it's like, chill music does tend to be kind of one of the bigger influences so Mm -hmm. um you know that being said right now we make so many songs have like drops and like you know Mm -hmm. like crazy electronic moments uh, (laughs) pretty pretty varied but uh really anything i just listen to new music um and whatever inspires me whatever i get excited about Hmm. i kind of go that keeps me growing and changing right so yeah you you were saying before that a lot of the songs from Bold kind of came out of this sort of teenage experience. Would you also uh, maybe talk about some of the possible spiritual influences that were present uh, throughout uh, that album? Totally. So um, my first album from Basement Rooftops was written when I was a teenager. Bold was what I wrote over the last, well, I wrote kind of around 2016, 2017. Okay. Um, that so that was that was me kind of in in my life I had kind of reached this point where I had taken all of what I was calling the right path I um I I had done all the right things that I told myself I needed to be doing um it was it was more about like making sure that you know the concepts of right and wrong are strictly adhered to and mm-hmm. um, that other people's perceptions of what I needed to do were were what I needed to do versus me knowing my own identity. Um, and so when I was writing Bold, um, I was also, all these things that I built up in my life in every different area, career, personal life, you know, I bought a house, everything. It was all kind of showing that it was flawed and it wasn't working mm. at the exact same time. 2016 was a hard year for a lot of people, mm-hmm. I think. Um, and uh, the whole, I mean, I know I'm Canadian, but we're super influenced by your politics. Right. Uh, we're very, we feel very involved and invested. <laughs> so <laughs> when everything was going on with you guys, um, we felt it and I felt it really strongly. Um, so that was a big part of it too. Um, so with Bold, it, it's all these different songs with different aspects of my life, realizing I don't want to be that person that's I don't believe that I'm not sure what I believe sometimes but I do know that it's most important to be genuine and real with people versus um making a song that has a like happy twist at the end Mm -hmm. where there's always hope because sometimes you don't feel that you know and as an artist I think it's really important that if I'm going to be like painting a picture um that I paint that feeling true to itself without like a silver lining always because it's just that's just art you know it's just mm-hmm. i'm just creating something that i feel it doesn't have to be doesn't have to have a, a moral 
um, you know, resolution necessarily. Um, so mm-hmm. I freed myself of, of that. And I found that I've been um, really enjoying <laughs> that kind of freedom. That's awesome. Uh, last question. How can listeners get connected to your work? Uh, so I'm all, I'm wherever people are is what I kind of try to say. So right (laughs) now, um, I'm spending a lot more time on Instagram than I used to. It's kind of where I've been hanging out. Mm -hmm. Um, but I have Twitter as well. That's a place that I used to be a lot more and I'd like to be, become more involved with Twitter again. I realize there's a lot of people like you and I on twitter and there's our little community there (laughs) oh it's so great feeling so isolated um so yeah so twitter um and then facebook and um yeah my website is uh down right now i'm doing some changes making some changes to it as i prepare for some new music Mm -hmm. but uh but yeah Bandcamp, just Brittany mcquinn um i'm i'm there and listen to me i'd love to chat with anybody who wants to talk about it talk about some of the stuff that i sing about yeah it's awesome that's great thank you so much uh this has been wonderful and all the best of luck to you and your music in the future thank you thank you for having me on your on your podcast i'm a huge fan so i was really honored to be asked to be on it i can see they were meant to be but then who was i I wonder too that with this increased connectivity and increased contact with different traditions, and this this is a question that's being asked in in many different uh, in many different uh, places right now. It's it's being asked in in race uh, relationships. It's being asked in um, sexuality and gender relationships. But um, there there's kind of the debate of do these do should traditions kind of meld together or are they going to meld together into this kind of blob of one tradition or are they going to be more uh or or traditions as they come in more increased contact are they going to fortify their tradition even more and so there's kind of a debate going on with that do do you how do you think the christian tradition would respond I, i mean i'm as yeah, a non-dualist, I'm sure you probably will say, oh, it's going to happen to both both ways. Yeah, I mean, probably. It's hard to say. I think about, um, so, you know, being in a, in a Mennonite context, there's this whole movement of like neo-anabaptism where people who are in other denominational contexts, like you can be a, a Methodist neo-anabaptist, they, they'll take elements of anabaptism and hmm. apply it within their own context. And I think that's been a, a good thing. Um, I don't know if it, if that's something that's maybe unique to Anabaptism just because of, I don't know, some unique aspects of the tradition, like the, the focus on avoiding conflict um, right. with the, you know, rejection of violence. Um, so, yeah, I think, I think it'll, to some extent, depend, maybe not even so much on the tradition, but on the specific bodies of people and, like, institutional culture of, do we, like, you know, draw our lines and, and make it super clear who's in and who's out, or do we um, you know, draw from these other traditions and, and right. build that into our own. Um, it seems doubtful that it would just sort of all melt together in a blob. Um, but yeah, I, I think there will be some some exchange and there will be some digging in. Um, I hope more exchange and in a positive sense, you know, not not losing the, the distinctives. Um, that was one of the questions that I, I asked in all of the 
the interviews, the mm-hmm. Q and A's. Like, what's what's a distinctive thing that, that your tradition or your context offers to the Church Universal? And I think retaining those distinctives is a good thing. We don't have to all be, you know, monastics. We don't have to all be um, super, you know, gifted in in whatever sort of theology or whatever lifestyle. We can have different specializations. Um, mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean we can't learn from those people, hopefully, um, and recognize they have something to teach us, even if we don't end up exactly like them. I can't wait till this is a fight without a feeling. So let's be good uh, Lutherans right now. Um, <laughs> as a theologian who um, did work both in the United States and Germany, Bonhoeffer witnessed many Christian traditions, probably not in the increased connectivity way that that we're able to, but uh, still experienced a number of different traditions that that, uh, more than likely most Christians at that time would have not been able to experience. Um, But some of those traditions were were rather toxic, like the the Christian church in Germany at the time uh, of Nazi (laughs) Germany, and others more generative. I mean, he had a really powerful experience in the black church in New York, in in Harlem. Um, So out of this experience, he, uh, I'm sure, influenced this this concept. I don't know if it was directly, I don't think it was directly influential of this concept, but uh, out of that experience that Bonhoeffer had of these many traditions, he conceptualized religionless Christianity. How do you see your book and what you are working on with your book speaking to Bonhoeffer's conception of religionless Christianity? So I have read the the passages on that. Um, oh, and aren't I, they great? They're just the best. They're fascinating, but I'm not, I, I don't know that I'm enough of a Bonhoeffer person to, <laughs> to, you know, really competently weigh in on that um, or to even confidently assert that I for sure know what he meant mm-hmm. um i in the sense of the commentary about uh the this broader society becoming increasingly religion religionless mm-hmm. and and not able to connect to these old forms anymore um i hope it would at least be the book would at least be accessible to those people you know you hear a lot about um the nuns people right. who you know leave church or, or were never in it at all and they just don't have any context of religion at that point, and especially if you don't grow up in church, you just start out a nun. It's it's very foreign in the way he describes. Um, For sure. And and so I I did think about that dynamic a lot while writing to to say like, is this something that someone like that can read and get you know at least eighty five to ninety percent of it? Mm-hmm. Um, so I hope it's at least helpful in an explanationy sense mm-hmm. um, in that way. But yeah, I, I think you're much more the, the Bonhoeffer expert I would, than I, I would, am. So I would maybe you have some, some thoughts on that subject. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so I, I do think that... Um, so you, you said that uh, you're not exactly sure what uh, Bonhoeffer was conceptualizing, and, and you probably would defer to the scholars. Well, the, <laughs> the problem with the scholars, too, is, I mean, he was killed, like, within a year of writing this. Right. So I mean, there's really not a lot out there. Very short passages like yeah yeah there's not a lot like you yeah there's a few a few chapters about it and that's and that's it yeah a few few letter a few exchanges um and that's it so there's not even a lot out there so even the Bonhoeffer scholars are like yeah I don't know so but but the way that I envision uh based on the world that he had growing up and based on the world that he, he was maybe hoping for 
um, in terms of the, the Christian world that he was hoping for. I do think that he was ha- like knew that this was happening, like the, or was going to happen. That this rise of an increased connectivity between different traditions is is going to um, is going to be a new factor within Christianity because for so long, I mean, just with our techno technological advances, we weren't at the point where different people could come in such increased contact. Um, but that's, but that's the case now, right? Like I, I've right. got many friends across many different Christian traditions, much less, uh, many friends across different faith and religious traditions altogether. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that part of the concept behind religionless is that with this increased connectivity, uh, religion, religion will, and always will play a part of uh, society uh, in, in people's lives, but it won't be tied so much to one particular tradition in the way that it was in, in America and Western Europe for so long, where you were, mm. you were tied to a particular denomination or a particular tradition. You grew up in that tradition. You will be that tradition. Your kids are going to be baptized in that tradition, and mm-hmm. that's the way it's going to be. Um, but with this rise in, in connectivity, we, we see people jumping ship from the Episcopalians to the Methodists and people from the Methodists going over to become Pentecostals. And that is happening. And that movement and that activity uh, is, I think, what may be partly of what Bonhoeffer was getting at with this idea of religionless Christianity, that that activity is so uh, de- de- delineating, I think is the right <laughs> word, uh, delineating, Deillinating uh, religion, the concept of religion that it's it's essentially making the word meaningless. Interesting, um, or at least the way that religion was understood at the time. Sure, making that that word uh, religionless, right? So it's mm-hmm. it's void of its meaning, and and I think that's partly what Bonhoeffer is getting at. Um, there's a lot of other avenues that it can be taken to mm-hmm. with you know a. a religion that is uh or christianity that is void of nationalism that it that had so um become entwined in in nazi germany but uh, and there's so many different avenues and it's partly why the death of god theologians kind of took a hold of that concept and did their thing with it and um but there's a lot of different ways that you can think of it i but i do think that there this way that your book kind of gets at is partly is one of those ways in which religionless Christianity speaks. So last question, Uh, how can the listeners get in contact with you and, and connected to your work? Yeah, so you can find me at bonniechristian.com, and I'm on Twitter also at bonniechristian. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, answer, I answer my tweets. <laughs> great. And, uh, yeah, and uh, there's, like, a question box on the, on the website as well where you can submit questions um, if you want to get in touch that way. And the, the book, A Flexible Faith, will be in stores on May 15th. Um, 
I'm not allowed to just promote Amazon. So at your retailer of choice, um, <laughs> which, and that's, that's also links to that are, are all listed on, on my website to, to all sorts of places to buy it. Um, and then, yeah, that's, that's also a good place to find out what I'm writing, you know, on a more weekly basis about other things. That's um, great. Yeah. Even speaking of which, I know a lot of local bookstores, if they don't have a person's book, you can always ask them to order it and they can they can always yes. order it for you. And and usually that's a much better way to you know support your local bookstore and, and whatnot. And that and I recommend that. And I'm, I'm having a, a book party at a local bookstore that I'm very excited about. And you can also ask your local library like uh, in my county, there's like an online form and it takes two minutes. And that's you don't even have to be like logged into a library account. There's no requirement that you even have to prove you live in this county. Really? Yes, it was. And then I went over to your county, to Hennepin County, and it was like way more locked down like you had to oh, have your are, library yeah. account and we're it's incredibly in, uh, exclusive uh city yeah. i mean apparently st paul is just down for anybody to be suggesting books um but yeah libraries will get books usually if you ask for it and then you That's can great. check it out for free awesome well thank you so much uh i loved uh hearing what you have to have to say and uh yeah i i really dig uh, flexible faith well thank you so much thank you for having me Intense emotion Hello again And you were my controlling friend I don't welcome in Intense emotion Hello again And you were my controlling friend I don't welcome in Bonnie is just so great She is a classic Minnesotan uh, she reached out to me several months ago about her releasing her new book and uh, asked if she could talk about it on Religionless Church. And immediately she told me, I'm also a fellow Minnesotan. I'm a Twin Cities person. And I, I knew instantly it would totally work. I mean, Twin Cities people are just the best. So make sure you get connected to Bonnie's work via her website, bonniechristian.com. And you can also get connected to her through twitter as well so be sure to get connected to her also get connected to Brittany mcquinn isn't she just really wonderful that that sort of cheery attitude and, and kind of sort of optimistic feel i like that it's intention in her songs with some sort of maybe pessimism or um uh, as she talked about like sometimes there's not really a, a feeling of hope and she wants to be honest about that so I really like that in her music, there's that tension, but at least in our interview, there's just sort of this bubbly, optimistic spirit, and I really like that about her. She's really wonderful. You can get connected to her work. All the links to get connected to her are in the description below. And always make sure that you stay in contact with me. You can go to my website, masonmenegat.com. You can see all the sort of writings that I have. You can also get connected to more Religionless Church episodes. And you'll also be able to find me on social media as well, especially Twitter. That's where I'm at the most. And I would love to uh, kind of get connected with you on that. And always, can't stress it enough, become a patron of Mason Meninga through Religionless Church. I think that's what it's called on my Patreon. And again, you can support me financially and get different rewards for it. And I think, honestly, I have some pretty great rewards. I mean, if you look at some more famous people and their rewards based on like the same amount of money, I honestly, I think I'm giving a bargain away. Like I'm, I'm giving out a lot. So I really think 
that if this podcast matters to you and my work matters to you, it would be really great to financially support me. So be sure to get connected that way as well. And that concludes this episode. Thank you again for listening, and I will see you on the flip side. You are my controlling friend. I don't